from the FLI Audio Files. I'm Arielle Kahn with the Future of Life Institute. Back in early August, I had the good fortune to not only attend the Effective Altruism Global Conference in Berkeley, but also to sit down with Dr. Robin Hansen to discuss his new book, The Age of M. This interview was recorded as we sat outside enjoying the sun, so there's a little more background noise, wind, and even church bells than in a standard podcast, but it was wonderful to get a chance to talk with Dr. Hansen in person, and I highly recommend reading his book if you get a chance. And now for the interview. Robin, thank you for talking with us. Thank you, So you wrote the book, The Age of M. Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. Okay, give me the whole title again. <laughs> the Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. Nice. And the marketing team thought When Robots Rule the Earth would just make a pretty good title by itself. <laughs> we pushed a little for something a little more academic, because in a sense, the word robot connotes something a little different than I'm talking about. It's close enough for a subtitle, but not sort of title. Okay, so that's actually a question that I want to go straight towards. Right. Tell me what an M is, and it's not the same as a robot. It's a form of machine intelligence. So they'd be made in factories, a lot of stuff dug up in mines. You'd repair them like you'd repair a machine, or have new models of them like machines. So they are machine intelligence in all those sorts of senses. But the software inside them, instead of being written explicitly like software we do today, or even learned by a statistical algorithm, it would be software that's ported from real human brains. You take existing real humans and you would initially destructively scan them by slowly slicing a layer off from their brain and doing a two-dimensional scan to see exactly which cells of which type are where and connected to what and then you slice another layer and you slice another layer and by the end you'd have a complete three-dimensional model of which cells are where of what type with what chemical densities and you would scan whatever is relevant for filling in models because what we'd have is models of how each type of cell works Okay. in terms of taking signals in, changing internal state, and signals out. That's the only part of the cell we need to model. Most cells, of course, are enormously complicated, and they do lots and lots of things. We don't need most of the things cells do. We need to model the key signaling processing part, how they take signals in, change state, and send signals out. And if we have good enough models for all the cells, all the types of cells that are in a brain, and good enough scans of particular brain to see which types are where, then we should be able to make a good enough model of the entire brain. That is something that has the same signal input-output behavior. That is, we can hook it up with hands, eyes, ears, mouth, artificial of course, and then we could talk to it and it would talk back, we could ask it to do something and it might do something, and it would do all of these things just like the original human would have at the very beginning. So at the very first moment you turn it on, you have to convince it that it is now the emulation. It is a moment before it was a scanned human, before they went to sleep, before the scanning process. That's the last thing they remember. And now you turn it on and you would say, hello, John, you are now an emulation. And they would try to show it its computer implementation and some of its features and convince it that it's now an emulation. And it learns and thinks and it has emotions all exactly like the original human did, and then it diverges because of differing experience, just like each of us does. So if you had to imagine a duplicate made of you who then moved to Alaska and became a lumberjack, that duplicate <laughs> of you would then become different from you okay. in many ways. Okay, and so was... M's are that different from us. They are different because they start out exactly like us and become different with differing experience. But you're saying initially the M wouldn't even recognize that it was an emulation. It would still think right. it was... I mean, if you told it about what was going to happen before you scanned right. it, then it would be expecting that it might be an emulation later, but still a bit of a surprise or a shock or a dramatic <laughs> event that it would like want to verify, yeah, I guess I really am. 
Okay. And so, if I recall right, at the beginning you implied that you thought this would only last for two years? A year or two of objective, real clock time, such as we clock now. But emulations can run at different speeds mm -hmm. relative to an original. So, I've estimated the typical speed of an emulation to be roughly a thousand times human speed. Okay. So, to a typical speed emulation, this year or two lasts a thousand or two years, which is plenty of time for the M civilization to evolve culturally, to begin to have different habits and different beliefs and different values and different practices. 2,000 years is enough time for cultures to diverge. Right. right, okay. And so, something else I was confused about is where are all the people? What happens to humans? So, in a year or two, not much can happen to humans. Right. So, I do talk about the things that do happen to them, they are pretty dramatic, but uh -huh. limited. So first thing that happens is they all lose their jobs. They are must retire, forced retirement across uh -huh. the entire human race. The second thing happens is that some of them get very rich very fast. Right. So if the simulation economy doubles roughly every month, as I estimate, then wealth doubles every month. So humans who have stocks, real estate, patents, things of value in this new economy, those assets increase in value very rapidly. Okay. Humans start out owning pretty much all this economy, all of the capital in this economy, mm -hmm. and so if this economy grows large and fast, they get rich fast. But it's only that select few humans. So the, many people today, even in, in a country as rich as the United States, really can't put together $500 right. to deal with some unexpected expense. They right. have pretty much all of their wealth embodied in their ability to work that's a very dangerous strategy if this sort of thing is around the corner. Mm -hmm. Now it's not just around the corner. We do have decades plausibly to adapt, but when this happens, it will happen pretty fast. So the wise strategy would be to prepare ahead of time and just be ready for it. You don't have to do anything in particular, just be ready. And the straightforward thing to be ready is with arrangements of insurance and sharing. And you could have an insurance product that directly paid if M's take over the world, or you can have an agreement with other people who will agree to share with you their wealth or gains if a situation like this ever to occur. Okay. But many people have sharing arrangements with their church and their family and, mm -hmm. and, and their nation sometimes. So those who have sufficient insurance and sharing arrangements can do fine in their retirement away from the emulations. So emulations will concentrate into a small number of very dense cities, which are probably not very hospitable to humans. Mm -hmm. And so humans will basically get the rest of the earth because okay. emulations don't want it. They really want to concentrate in these small number of dead cities and then have whatever inputs they need to support these cities. Okay. Mines, oil fields, cooling pipes, things like that. Okay. So I know, especially early on, you talked about how, to a certain extent, you're writing this because you're very interested in what the M lifestyle will be. Now, I tend to be more interested in humans myself. Yeah. And so a lot of the book, to me, seemed sort of like a warning that if we're not preparing properly, we are just sort of moving... That's a way to look at ...down it. a path. Now, I'd say think about someone from 300 years ago mm -hmm. who was a subsistence farmer who had been told the Industrial Revolution is coming, that there will soon be an industrial economy. It will grow large and fast relative to historical timescales, and soon it will dominate the world economy. That is, it will dominate nations. It will dominate things that most people will live in an industrial economy. Most wealth will be there. Most political power will be there. Now, if you as a subsistence farmer heard about this coming, if you identified with being a farmer so essentially that you said, this is terrible, people like me are going to be pushed to the side mm -hmm. and no longer be in power, those industrialists will run things, you could be discouraged by hearing about the Industrial Revolution coming. Right. 
On the other hand, you might have done what many or even most people did and said to yourself, my children or grandchildren, they could become industrialists. That's a possibility for them. And I could be proud of that. I could be happy with my children being successful, being industrialists. I might want them to move to cities and acquire new kinds of job skills and work in factories or office buildings. And they would be somewhat alienated from me. They would not be living on the farm here and available for dinner every evening or something, but I could be proud of and happy for my children becoming industrialists. And we have that choice too here, obviously the parallel is. If you see yourself as essentially human and your children as essentially human and emulations as an other that are just not the sort of thing you can be, then you see creatures like you being displaced by an other. But if you could see emulations as your descendants, they come from humans, that's their origin. They will certainly feel very akin to humans in the sense that that's where they came from. My understanding though is that only a select number of humans will become M's. Only a select number of humans will become the most copied M's. Okay. So, most emulations come from the few hundred most copied humans, but pretty much all humans who want to will be able to have emulation versions of themselves or okay. become an emulation if they want. They will be less competitive, so they won't win in the economic competition to become large major players, but they could still become emulations and live in an emulation world. And honestly, emulations will quickly be cheap enough that it will be cheaper to live a life of luxury as an emulation than as a human. Humans will continue to be expensive relative to an emulation okay. and vulnerable. They're biological. There's things that can go wrong with them. They age and even if they have you know, anti-aging technology or something, those will be expensive emulations. In the contrast, they can live in spectacularly beautiful, luxurious virtual reality. Mm -hmm. They never need pain, hunger, grime, disease. Their bodies are always beautiful. They can travel the world at the speed of light. They can run fast or slow. They can, you know, they, they can just experience so many other things that humans can't. Even if they aren't the winners in the economic competition, there can still be a place for them, especially if they have some retirement savings. If you have meager retirement savings that might not be enough to make you survive as a human, it might be plenty to make you survive as a luxurious emulation. So you might make the move. You might say, just like a subsistence farmer, if their subsistence farming village is on the down, uh, people are leaving, uh, nobody wants their product anymore, mm -hmm. they're getting poor, they could think of leaving their subsistence farming village and moving to the city. Even if they're 60 years old and have a whole career as a farmer, maybe they won't be the next lawyer in the city, but they could still have a life in the city and children there and friends. Okay. So the other thing that I found fascinating is I come from a literary background yeah. and this is a very intricately created world, world. but not a plot or characters. Exactly. <laughs> there were actually two interesting things. One, you didn't have any plot or characters and yet I did find myself going, what's next? What's going to happen <laughs> next? What's going to happen ah. with him? So I okay, enjoyed great. that. But I was curious, why do you think it's important that we understand all these minute details about the M lifestyle and what will happen? Well, at a very literal level, the future matters more than the past because we can do something about it. We separate the past in terms of you know, 17th century France or we separate it by you know time period multiplied by geographic area, say, and different people specialize in studying different places in the past. Mm -hmm. For studying the future, I think the first way it should be broken up is by scenario. You can project our world now into the future and then at some point something disruptive happens that moves it away from what we're familiar and there's a space of possible disruptive scenarios. And I think the first way to study the future is to enumerate these disruptive scenarios and for each one, explore it to ask what does that world look like? I think people have not done enough of this. Uh, right. There's certainly, you know, 20% of books on amazon.com have the keyword history and only 1% have the keyword future. And if you ask people why such a disproportionate attention to the past, the usual answer is because we can't study the future. We have artifacts about the past. Look, there's a document and look, there's a gravesite. 
but for the future we have no artifacts, therefore we can't study the future. That just seems wrong to me. I'm a theorist. We have theory. That is, we accumulate theory from the past and the present, and then we use theory to infer the future. And I think we can learn a lot about the future scenarios by just applying our standard theories. And I want to show that that's possible to inspire more effort. I think we should at least have a hundred books that explore concrete future technology scenarios. Therefore, any scenario with a 1% chance is a fair game for being in that set of 100 books. And so, what do you do when you have a future scenario to explore it? The straightforward thing, I think, which is doable without that much effort, is simply take it and say everything you can about it. And once you've filled out a larger picture, then maybe you'll have a sense of which parts of it are important. But mm -hmm. I think first just fill it out, and without being that picky about which parts are important, and then ask yourself, what does this world look like, and now, what's important? Also, different parts will help each other. When you're thinking about one part, the more other concrete things you know, the easier it is to think about that one part. Okay. If you want to know about schools, for example, you need to know about childhood, you need to know about careers, you need to know about aging, you need to know about which kind of skills are in demand. So I think the more details you can fill out, the more it helps you with other details until you have a rich description. Okay. Now, you shouldn't be that confident in any one piece. It's an exercise and maybe you should make some contrary assumptions and explore them and see where that goes. But this is just the straightforward thing to do. Take a number of future scenarios as defined by disruptive changes that would move us away from trends and explore each one. And I chose this one both because I thought it was particularly likely mm -hmm. and particularly open to applying standard theories. If you have a, a theory that there will be artificial intelligence in the future, you know, it matters what kind of artificial intelligence is and the structure of artificial intelligence. And for many of these scenarios, people are just not very clear about what they have in mind. For emulations, it's really clear. Emulation scenarios is basically you're porting the software in an existing human brain, uh -huh. you're moving it over, and so now it has all the same psychological habits and inclinations as humans. It even inherits the culture that humans came before it, mm -hmm. so you know a lot about it. You can say a lot. So do you consider the M world to be the most likely or just a really good jumping off point for considering future possibilities? Both. So I was an AI researcher for nine years and that was ending uh, 23 years ago. And so since then, especially in the last 10 years, I've been in the habit of meeting people who are AI researchers at conferences and events and asking them, in the field you know best, the field you've been working on, how far have we come in 20 years? Uh -huh. As a percentage of human level abilities and any noticeable acceleration or deceleration. And the typical answer I've been given, happy to listen to other answers other people get, is that they've come five to 10% of the way. And continuing that rate forward, it would take two to four centuries. Do so, you think we'll continue that rate forward, or do you th think... That's, I think, the straightforward default assumption, yeah. I okay. think past progress is the best indication of future progress. It has been relatively consistent over a long time. We've had 70 years of software, and we've seen bursts of progress at various mm -hmm. points, like today there's deep learning as a burst of progress, but we've had bursts in the past. We also have bursts of automation, so there's bursts of fundamental theoretical progress, and then there's just bursts of when a particular job gets displaced, and those aren't the same kind of bursts. When airline travel agents were displaced, that was a particular point at which computers became possible to displace them. That wasn't a great theoretical innovation mm -hmm. that suddenly made that possible. It just right. happened. All the things happened to line up to make that possible. So we've had a relatively steady rate of displacement of jobs and theoretical innovation with you know, fluctuations and bursts for a long time. And so I would just project that rate forward and say, that's probably what's going to continue. Now, you still have to compare that to emulation. So some people have tried, there's three key technologies required. And some people try to look at what the trends in those technologies are and therefore to estimate when they'll be good enough. And it seems like they'll be good enough within a century or so. A century is shorter than two to four centuries. <laughs> so there you go. You know, some things can slow down both. 
slowing down hardware gains actually probably slows down both of these paths. Yeah. That there's many other things will affect these paths. There are people who disagree, and in part, it's a bet or judgment based on how complicated you think the brain is. There are people, thoughtful people, who think that the brain has some essentially simple design mm -hmm. that we only now dimly glimpse. Mm -hmm. And so they think we've had slow progress because we haven't found this key design. They think that when we do find this key design, we will make more rapid progress. Okay. And if you think the design itself isn't that complicated, you think that might happen sooner than a century, at which point uh, you think it'll work out, that that'll happen first. Now, and it is true that if you ask AI researchers just to guess when will full AI be achieved, they give you much shorter times than two to four centuries. In my opinion, that's asking someone about something they know less about. When you ask them about the progress in their field that they've seen up close and personal for the last 20 years, you are asking them, I think, the question that they can expect to know the most about. Whereas when you ask them, how do you think the entire field of all automation will progress in the future, that's something you know less about. And so they are switching mental modes, I would say. And the sort of timescales people have been forecasting for AI has actually been relatively constant for the last half century or so. So the very first forecasts are now mostly wrong because yeah. uh, they were forecasting that we'd have it by now. Right. But we don't. So that's a reason mildly to doubt the reliability of that mental mode they're in and judging things about other people elsewhere. I think it's also, there's a what's called construal level theory has a contribution here, which is that people think differently when they're thinking abstractly or concretely. And in particular, when they're thinking abstractly, they tend to think simple theories are more powerful and apply better than they think in a concrete mode. And this is about thinking whether we have a simple theory of intelligence and whether that's the main thing we need or whether we need a lot of other things. So okay. my position would be, yes, of course, there will be simple theories we find that are important and useful, but mostly there's a mass of detail to manage. So it's like you know, a bacterium or a city. These are things where there are simple principles that do describe <laughs> them somewhat, but in order to make an effective bacterium or an effective city, you mainly have to just get a lot of detail, right? Right. Okay. And that's what the brain is like. It's mainly a lot of detail. That's why it's hard to design a city or to design a bacterium or even most species. There's mm -hmm. just a massive detail. So that's why I think there won't be rapid progress at some new point because I think the nature of managing a massive detail is that you slowly just have to chip away at it over a long time until you finally chip away most of it. And there is no sudden super burst of progress. So taking that into account and in what you were saying earlier about trying to come up with different future possibilities and going into as much detail, if you were going to do a sequel or well, something Well, so else, happens that I am. So I've just started on a grant from the Open Philanthropy Foundation okay. to spend three years using a similar style of analysis but exploring a different scenario. Can you talk about yes, that? Yes, of course. Okay. And that different scenario is an even more conservative scenario. Okay. So in a sense, it's the first ones that should have been done first if we were starting with the most conservative scenarios, which is assume that we eventually achieve human-level artificial intelligence that's uh -huh. embodied in software and on, runs on machines that has the same distribution of characteristics as the software we've seen for 70 years. Just assume we slowly accumulate more software like we have been for 70 years, uh -huh. and there's no sudden revolution or great transformation where the software we, we start developing is radically different than what we've already seen. We've seen a lot of software in 70 years. Uh -huh. We've built some large software systems in 70 years. We see some mildly consistent patterns in what happens when you try to build large, capable software systems. And the idea is just to assume that that continues to be true and ask, how does that scenario play out? Now, that's going to be a scenario with a more gradual transition 
Right. In the emulation scenario, basically almost nothing changes until emulations become possible. Half an emulation is no good. 99% of an emulation is no good. <laughs> it really needs to be all of an emulation to be much, of much use. So, for example, a human on drugs is a spectacularly good emulation of an ordinary human. It's still pretty useless for most jobs. It's not good enough. You need to be an even closer emulation than an ordinary human on drugs is. They need to be much closer and then it's useful. So that means there's a sharp transition for the emulation world. Okay. But for a certain moment, you just don't have much of use and all mm -hmm. of a sudden you have something that's enormously useful that you can make trillions of dollars with. Right. And then, so there's a relatively sudden transition that if you aren't prepared for, that you could be blindsided by. If we slowly accumulate software, then we're just gonna slowly incrementally displace jobs as we have been doing for several centuries. Uh -huh. And slowly over time, the percentage of world income that goes to pay for computers and software will slowly increase until the percentage becomes bigger than a half and then bigger than 70 and bigger than 90. And the percentage of income that goes to human workers gets crowded down to a small number. And that's the point, of course, at which people lose their jobs. But right. you get a, a lot of warning about it. Right. This parameter creeps up slowly and visibly over centuries. And you, you have a chance to adapt and respond. So what percentage are we at right now with computers? Probably less than five. Okay. Less than two, probably. Okay. So one observation people make is that technology has been improving exponentially. And so they say then what you should expect is an exponential rate of change socially, which would then be very slow initially, and then compound very quickly to something very large. In that point of view, you say, well, as soon as you start to see any sort of substantial effects, you should expect a lot more soon. So then you should see basically nothing, and then modest effects, and then enormous effects. That's if you thought the social effects would track the exponential curve of the technology. So as you know, computers like roughly double in capacity every two years. Do we have reason to believe that the social change would track? Well, I would say no, So, but, okay. <laughs> but I think this is a simple intuition many people have. So you're, you're working on this for the next three years is the grant. Are you planning on having another book uh, that, with that? that or I would it... like to, yes. Okay, I'll read that then too. <laughs> It'll be a, a little less personal. So this book that you, you just looked at, you can relate to it as literature because mm -hmm. they are very human-like right. heroes and villains, if you like, in the story. <laughs> they have human emotions, they uh -huh. have sections on mating and swearing and retiring and, you know, war. And so, so we have all of these very human behaviors that are described in the book, which right. makes it relatable. A world where it's more about the software is going to be a little more abstract. So this book will have to go into more explaining and talking about software in the kind of terms that we use when we want to make finer distinctions about different ways to make software, different ways to organize it, different ways they're connected, different ways we monitor it and repair it, different ways we manage the production of it, ways to produce software, the different kinds of strategies for managing uh, the changes in software. Well, I've got high hopes. You seem very excited <laughs> right. about the topic, and I find well, usually when people are excited about well, a topic, it, it, it may helps. at least be a way to learn about software. There you go. <laughs> so my current book, The Age of M, some people have said, and it's somewhat true, that it's a, an introduction to your world. That is because I go over an entire new civilization, and I talk about each element of the civilization, and I start out each one by saying, well, in our world it's like this, but the following parameters will change, and therefore the M world will be different in the following ways. And for many people, they don't really know what our world is like. That was something that stood out for me. And, and maybe that was part of why it was so engrossing. For as much as it wasn't about people, it was very much about our world today. Right. And I found that was very engaging. And not only our world today, but our world today in the context of the previous worlds that have come before. Yes. So, you know, the yes. farming and the foraging worlds. And, yeah. and, I, and I do enjoy giving people this larger perspective. You're, you're immersed in your little you know, world. And humanity already has seen enormous change, cultural and otherwise. 
if you realize just how different your ancestors were, you realize just how much capacity there is for your descendants to be different from you as well. Right. Which is going to be scary because it's not hard to know what to embrace or endorse. And many people are very proud that they think their era is superior than their ancestors. They look at the lives of their farming ancestors' forages and they feel that those people couldn't have done any better, but they're sure glad we're not them and surely we have uh, learned so much more and we just know the better way to do things now. Mm -hmm. and, you know, people feel quite comfortable feeling superior to their ancestors. <laughs> and the M's have, will have really far more concrete reasons to feel superior to you. And they will. They will look on you with some degree of nostalgia and gratitude, but not so much respect. Yeah. Well, I kind of figure that's going to be happening <laughs> yeah. to, to whatever evolves yeah, exactly. after Because that's how we kind of treat our ancestors, even when it's not justified. Mm -hmm. we, yeah. we go out of our way to like feel superior to them, even when if we thought about it, we'd realize we would find it really hard to survive in their world. Yes. Okay. Well, okay. thank you so much. You're most welcome. To learn more, visit futureoflife.org.